Hello and welcome to the TID Water and Power Podcast. I'm your host, Constance Anderson, and on this month's episode, we're discussing TID's hydrological forecasting and modeling efforts and how those influence TID operations. In the midst of a third consecutive dry year, the TID Board of Directors set the irrigation season at 27 inches of available water, slightly more than half of the water typically available to growers in a normal water year. Frighteningly, even at nearly a 50% reduction of normal, TID growers are in better shape than much of the state, with some growers in California receiving 10% of normal or less. Given the wetter wet spells and the drier dry years, we know that what we would previously consider normal water years are harder and harder to come by. So how does TID manage the current situation and plan for the future given such uncertain conditions? Thanks to investments in data and technology, TID has become a leading innovator in hydrological forecasting and modeling, allowing the district to better prepare and plan for drought and other climate-induced challenges. On this episode, I'm joined by TID hydrologists Olivia Kramer and Wes Monier to discuss the current water year and how TID is leveraging technology to better forecast, inform, and plan water operations. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for Thank having you. us. So you both are our repeat guests to the podcast, and we're excited to have you back. Uh, Olivia, you have uh, you were with us on episode five, in which we talked about drought um, back in September of, of 2021. At the time, finishing up that water year and looking ahead, hoping for better outcomes in, in 2022. But we'll, we'll get into a little bit later how those kind of shaped up against what we were hoping for at the time. Um, and then, Wes, you were with us on episode two, in which we talked about uh, the Don Pedro Project, 50 Years of Water and Power. So thank you both for, uh, for being with us yet again. We're excited to have you back. All right, so let's start out for uh, some of our newer li- listeners. Um, if each of you could just give us a little bit on your background with the district and uh, what you are doing in your current role. Olivia, you want to get us started? Absolutely. So my first experience with the district was actually as a summer intern. So while I was studying a a degree in hydrology at UC Santa Barbara, I would come back to Turlock, my hometown, during the summers and was able to intern under uh, West Monier's department, actually. And uh, I did that for two summers, so 2016 and 2017. I then uh, completed my degree and at that point went through the whole interview process and I was lucky enough to have um, been picked to be brought on full time. So now I've been with the district for almost four years. Awesome. I think the district is probably pretty lucky to have you as well. All right, Wes, you've been here a few more years than Olivia. A couple more years. (laughs) Uh, I spent the summer of uh, 1988 uh, roaming around the Sierra watersheds coming from Texas. Uh, You know, they don't have mountains back there. So I was impressed uh, with just the environment, but more so on the civil engineering, the dams, the conduits, and everything. So I ended up applying here at TID and uh, be darned if I didn't find out I was going to be working with that stuff. So I never looked back. Fantastic. Well, we're thrilled to have you both. All right, so let's jump in. Um, as I mentioned in the in the intro, the uh, TID Board of Directors just set the irrigation season. Um, each grower has 27 inches of available water uh, for their, their parcels, and they set the season to run from March 28th to October 12th. Uh, what can you tell us as far as how this compares to normal? 
So we'll we'll start off with uh, what normal inches are. That's what everyone's kind of used to. So we usually provide 48 inches in a an average to wet year, um, which is approximately about 550,000 acre feet out of Don Pedro. And so, as I alluded to earlier, these normal years are are kind of becoming less than normal. Um, how many years would you say? look more like the year we're experiencing this year versus that what we would previously consider a normal 48-inch year? In general, uh, we uh, out of the last 100 years, we've probably had one year that was normal. Um, we live in an environment of extremes, and it's getting even more so. Um, out of the last uh, 25 years, uh, 18 of those have been – we've. Uh, given the customer a, a full allotment. However, the last 10, uh, seven of those have been uh, below average. And so we're seeing an increase um, in the number of dry years. And unfortunately, along with that, when we do have uh, average to wet years, we're seeing them very wet. And how does that compare to the last two years of the drought? We, th- this is our third year of a drought. What uh, what did farmers receive in 20 and 21? So we like to ensure that uh, we make reductions early on when we start to see conditions starting to turn towards the, the drier side. So initially 2020, first year of drought, we gave 42 inches to our farmers. And then in 2021, when we were in that second year of drought, we then cut back to 34 inches. So hydrology takes the data generated from a variety of sources, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, and works with multiple other departments at TID to determine the best recommendation to provide to the TID board of directors in advising them on how to set the season. What numbers were you guys seeing as of April 1 of this year that kind of impacted that recommendation? Absolutely. So uh, as of April 1, we're at about 68% of average when it comes to precipitation. But unfortunately for our snowpack, we're at 37% of average for the date. So a lot of that precipitation occurred early in the year, and now we've already seen a lot of it run off into the system. So we don't have much snowpack left over. And right now with our projections, assuming that conditions stay dry moving forward, we could end up about the 19th driest year on record. And although this doesn't seem uh, record-breaking like we keep talking about, but it's the fact that it's following a series of record-breaking dry years. And, and overall, it's the the compounding effects of those years that, that impact on Pedro and our operations overall. A singular dry year is one thing, but when you have the multiple dry years in succession – that creates a whole nother list of challenges. Absolutely. Don Pedro was built to, to withstand uh, droughts, but it's was not meant for these kind of droughts that we're seeing um, 50 years since it was built. Yeah, absolutely. But really, you had some uh, intelligence ahead of April 1, like two months before that. So we came off of, for all intents and purposes, a thought process dealing with flood control due to the October and December um, rain events that we received, and you immediately transitioned from a flood control uh, thought process to a critically dry because of the um, lack of rainfall that we were seeing and also that was forecasted. So really, uh, we were about two months ahead of that April. 
Absolutely. So, you know, every year is unique. Uh, like Wes mentioned earlier, uh, we've had probably one average year out of our 100 years of hydrology that we have on record. And so how are we planning to each of those years? Uh, this year, we had a, an amazing October, and then we went into a, a really good December as well. And they were cold storms, so they started to build up our snowpack. We were up at 163% of average for the date at the end of December. And um, like Wes mentioned, we were in flood control mindset at that point. Most of our projections were uh, tending towards us bumping into our flood control curve. And, and isn't that a very telling situation, right? We're talking about how there is no normal anymore. And to go from coming out of the second year of a drought into potential flood control preparations, and now given where we are, it's uh, the way you guys track this stuff is just fascinating. It's really amazing. It definitely keeps you on your toes, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, and so... But what ended up happening after all those wet events, everyone was prepared. Oh, we're having a, a great wet year. We're breaking the drought. And then, unfortunately, this high-pressure ridge built up uh, along the West Coast. And essentially what that does is any moisture that's coming from the Pacific that normally uh, provides majority of our water supply it is blocked and then uh, pushed up into the northern part of the United States and also uh, into Canada. And so that was why we ended up with our January, February, and even our March uh, precip values being uh, quite dismal. And uh, in all honesty, February, uh, January and February combined were the driest um, period on record for us um, by almost two inches, which is extremely significant. Absolutely. And I, I want to just quickly double back to one thing that you've mentioned a couple times now, um, the snowpack and the importance of the snowpack to our watershed. I think that's oftentimes something that um, our listeners might not consider when they th are thinking about kind of the overall conditions for the season. So how important is what is up in the snowpack? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing up there right now? Absolutely. So really our entire system it is built for snowpack runoff. Um, our flood control curves, which are mandated by the U.S. Army uh, Corps of Engineers. They set a curve and we have to have flood control space during the winter period. And that is specifically to any kind of rainfall events, large rainfall events that would bring in runoff. And so that's where our system is a snow dominant system. And so for our planning and for our irrigation, we're having to track that snowpack because that's what's actually serving our customers is that snowpack. Excellent. Okay. And we're going to talk more about the snowpack here uh, in just a little bit. Um, but let's go back to our precipitation events, because it seems like the months in which we receive the majority of our precipitation has shifted a bit. Um, what can you tell us, Wes, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about what we've seen in, in previous years and, and what we're seeing, what we are seeing more frequently these days. There's definitely some shifts going on. There is... Um there's shifts in the magnitude, both up and down. And then we're starting to see, uh, as we're experiencing other warm temperatures, the snowpack is coming off faster. So is, as Olivia was alluding to, we have this flood control space in the winter. And so what happens is, is then we start pushing up into that, and we have to release that water. And we ran into this, for example, in 2018, 
where you had to make, uh, for all intents and purposes, flood releases in a critically dry year. Uh, now, we did, using technology, manage to save 150,000 acre feet. All right. And what about uh, 2020 and 2021? So this year is what I would call a fairly dry year. But when you take uh, a two-year and three-year accumulation, the end result of that uh, rainfall is a runoff that is the second driest three years in history. And that is, I find it pretty staggering when you compare it that uh, within the last um, seven, eight years, this is the second one of those that we've had. And in fact, the driest three-year accum- three, three accumulations have happened uh, since 2014. Wow. That's a, a lot more dry happening in a shorter time. All right, so uh, Wes, take us back to the 2012 to th- through 2016 drought. Um, how does the drought we're experiencing now compare to to the most recent drought on record? Uh, it's un- it's unreal how the 2012, 13, 14 drought and the total amount of runoff compares to this year. Uh, it's they're identical. For all intents and purposes, yes, there's a little difference, but when you look at the noise, it, they're identical. Um, and as I said, the um, these are the two driest uh, three-year periods in recorded history. So um, this compounding effect that's going on, even though you have these wet years, 2017 and 19, they're not long enough to replenish the soil moisture and, and the groundwater, if you will. So we just keep digging a hole. And because of this compounding effort, it, it's harder for us to, it takes more rainfall to get out of these Absolutely. dry situations. Absolutely. From my perspective, uh, going, going back several decades, the 76-77 drought, which is the driest two years on record, the 87-92 drought, the six-year drought, from my perspective only, there's this idea that, well, you have these one in a hundred year events, and then you don't have to worry about it for a while. And we, the the idea that this drought was so significant and so harsh that the TID customer was limited to eighteen inches, um, so close, relatively speaking, to the eighty seven through ninety two drought, you, you wouldn't have thought coming into two thousand twelve that we would. You, you know, you're going to see droughts, but the magnitude of it. Well, and I think I would add that, as you were mentioning, Constance, when you, you experience these dry years, then you need even more precipitation to, to come back to normal. And what we found is because they were so close together, 2012 through 2015 was not that long ago. And now we're experiencing another uh, long-term drought. And we noticed actually last year where our soil moisture ended within the watershed was lower than in 2015. So in a second year of drought, we had lower soil moisture conditions in the watershed than after four years of drought. And that really shows that we never actually recovered. 2017 was one of the wettest years on record, but it didn't bring us back to normal. Um, We're seeing higher evaporative demands out of the system. And so that soil moisture just gets depleted. And I want to talk quickly about active storage. Uh, can you explain to us what active storage is and then what we're seeing in the the most recent drought, the 2012 through 2016, versus what we're experiencing now? Absolutely. So 
You know, most of the time, uh, our job, we are the project managers for Don Pedro uh, for both TID and MID. And so that means normally we're looking at Don Pedro as a whole, the Tuolumne watershed as a whole that's feeding in there. But when it comes to getting into the irrigation season and making the available water decision, we then have to shift our perspective from Don Pedro as a whole to now TID-centric, right, to, in order to provide that information. And so TID Active Storage looks at Don Pedro and how much of that is TID's water and how much of that is accessible. And so when we're looking at active storage, just for comparison to the, the last three-year period in 2014, we had 378,702 acre feet at the end of the irrigation season. This year, we're projecting to be at 414,159 acre feet. Not a huge difference between the, the two values, but overall, we are, we are ending up higher. And I think that's an indication to the overall efficiencies that we're seeing in the system. And just a, it's both efficiencies from investments on TID side, as well as we're noticing just changes in the way that our farmers are operating. They have become more efficient. They learn from that 2012 through 15 drought and have carried those practices over into this drought as well. And we're looking at where Don Pedro's at now, what the snowpack is looking like, what we might expect to come in to the upper three reservoirs, and how much of that are those upper three reservoirs going to hold back and not uh, release down to Don Pedro, which overall impacts the inflows and essentially TID active storage. Absolutely. A lot of variables. So Olivia's having to hold back water uh, literally for next year in case we have, for example, a 76-77 year, which historically would you wouldn't give it much credence, but now I think anything's on the table. And then you've got to keep water back for environmental flows. So again, a lot of variables that go into it. And a lot of information out there. So now I want to kind of dive into TID's forecasting and planning and, and measuring. So in the years that, well, during the last drought and in the years that followed, um, we learned a lot from that, right? And part of our, our drought response was the impl implementation of new technology, uh, the results of which have better prepared us for, uh, for this drought and, and dry years to come. Um, besides the, the past drought, what can you tell me about what has sort of driven our move towards these new technologies? Absolutely. Um, everything for us, um, you know, necessity drives innovation and, and everything we've done is out of necessity. Uh, one of the first things that we've done is the, the new buzzword within the hydrologic community is FIRO or forecast informed reservoir operations. And a lot of people feel like FIRO is, is brand new, hot off the press. But in reality, TID has already been implementing those practices and methodologies long before uh, it became the, the cool thing to do. And it's because we had to. Um, the way that Don Pedro set up, we have a road right under our spillway. So that means we can't be a fill and spill reservoir. We have to be very precise in even in wet normal years, how much we're filling that reservoir in order to not um, exceed that maximum value. And then the other, um, I guess, wrench to it all is the fact that our flood control compliance point for the channel is at Ninth Street Bridge. And so that is 23 hours below um, 
LaGrange. And then you have a dry creek that runs in right before that point. So we need to forecast local runoff to then adjust our releases at Don Pedro to not exceed our compliance uh, value at 9th Street. So we were already having to incorporate forecasts into our operations long before uh, others. And, and just to paint the quick picture for our, for our listeners, we're talking about following the, twal- the path of the water through the Tuolumne River. So from Don Pedro Reservoir down through, you mentioned 9th Street Bridge in Modesto, and then right, did you say right above that is where uh, Dry Creek flows into the river as well? Yes. So that's where that local runoff component comes in. Um, so essentially, we try and ratchet down our releases at Don Pedro in order to um, make up for any of that runoff that's coming through Dry Creek uh, to maintain a level uh, that's within that 9,000 CFS or uh, stage 55 feet at 9th Street. That The magnitude of that uh, channel capacity with respect to the runoff on the on the watershed, it's one of the Tuolumne is one of the smaller ones um, on the San Joaquin and state. Uh, so we don't have the luxury like the some of the uh, systems up in the Sacramento system where they can release 100,000 CFS. So we have to be know as far in advance as we can what, what we need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so coming out of the last drought. There was obviously this necessity for better information, for more detailed information that it kind of informs how you bring all these variables together and and make them take shape. Uh, what else fueled the push for new technologies? Yes. Yeah, so other than just uh, facility restraints and, and regulations uh, upon us, the other thing is the fact that we are seeing so much volatility in the system. Our system was built for the hydrology of 50 years ago. And that is not the same hydrology we're seeing today. It, it is not a static climate. And so that's what's pushing our, our new era of innovation uh, out of necessity is the fact that we need to stretch our facilities capabilities. And the only way to do that is to integrate new technologies to try and reduce the uncertainty in our current tools, Right. So there's a lot of uncertainty that's expanding when it comes to what kind of conditions you might expect or your weather, your hydrology, your climate conditions. So where are the areas that we can reduce some of that uncertainty and try and get back uh, to our normal operations or as close to normal as possible? Sure. Whatever normal looks like. Exactly. You know, just as a kind of a comment here from my perspective, the Turlock Irrigation District has a long history of having to adapt. We built uh, with our partners this 2,030,000 acre foot reservoir from uh, the original old Don Pedro of 290,000 acre feet. And within seven years, uh, coming off building the new reservoir in 71, we run into the 76, 77 drought. And up to that point, I think the feeling in general was, okay, we've with this reservoir and it's full, we can do pretty much whatever we want to do. That was the first instance was, well, wait a second, we don't have the water that we thought we did. And then very quickly, relatively speaking, we run into the 87 through 92 drought. And there we determined we absolutely don't have what we thought we had when we built the reservoir. And so we went to a, 
as all the uh, partners did on the Ptolemy, we went to a water first priority in 92. And then we've had to continue to adapt. And, and tell me a little bit more. What do you mean when you say water first priority? So prior to 76, 77, we would run Don Pedro in a hydroelectric format. So you, you release water uh, during the summer after the runoff, and you're running the generators, and you're uh, creating power for the customer. And then you go into the winter, and you, you start to fill it back up. And you start the whole cycle again. So it's a, c- a continuous cycle. And what we found is that uh, we just weren't getting the runoff. And we had to adapt. We had to change that. We had to go to strictly a water first priority. So the power is ancillary. It's secondary. We only generate power when uh, we're making the minimum flow requirement and irrigation. And then when we cannot hold on to it. And we uh, basically hold on to that water unless there's a 90% probability that we cannot hold on to it. But makes sense for TID and, and our operations. From a water conservation perspective, absolutely. All right. So I want to get into some of the specific technology that, that uh, you guys use and that, that TID uses. Um, and I know we're going to talk about the HFAM model, and I'll, I'll let you explain that. But there are a couple different models um, that we actually use to sort of create or, or pull our data from. What, what are those? So there, there's a lot of groups out there that are modeling California water supply, right? It's, a, it's an important resource, uh, especially within California. It drives our economy. And so the, the state actually has their own models. So one is the California Nevada River Forecast Center, and they have forecast points throughout the entire state of California looking at forecasting for both water supply as well as for uh, flood control. But I would say that they tend closer to that flood control purpose, uh, ensuring public safety. That's kind of their main mission is to let you know, are you going to go above uh, river stage? And then you have DWR. They provide the B120 forecast. And this is just a bulk volume April through July runoff forecast. So it is snow specific. That That's our period of time that we usually get our snowpack runoff. And that uh, is guided by the snow survey program. So essentially from February 1st uh, and each the first of each month all the way to May 1st, you have individuals go out and take physical samples of the snowpack and they use those values and run it through a, essentially a regression model uh, in order to translate those single sample values into a April through July runoff forecast for the, the entire watershed. So those are the, the products available. And then TID has its own product. Um, and this came out of actually 1997. So another one of those necessity things. We, we experienced a uh, record-breaking event, and we, it, was one of the, it was the first time that we opened the spillway at Don Pedro, one of the two times that we have. And so we brought in the HFAM model, and... We have been using it ever since. And, and HFAM stands for? Hydrocomp Forecasting and Analysis Model. And so essentially this model is a uh, kind of the next generation of the original. Uh, it's called HSPF. It's used by the EPA. It's the Stanford Watershed Model. And this is the kind of predecessor of it. 
Um, and in my opinion, the the better <laughs> of the two. And the the HVM model is Tuolumne specific and, and uh, specifically for, for Don Pedro it is the main focus, um, although it does include all the upper reservoirs. And so it is made up of thousands and thousands of land segments uh, within the Tuolumne watershed that are each calibrated, um, looking at what would the soil type be, what's the vegetation types, looking at what all those fact those physical factors are. Um, and then from there, we're able to then bring in inputs into it. So we have to look at what our precipitation is, what our temperatures are, what the wind values are, and even the solar radiation that's occurring within the watershed. And it's able to use that information to then um, – look at what the physical processes would be and be able to output information like our soil moisture values, what the snowpack would be, what your uh, resulting runoff would be into each of your reservoirs uh, within the watershed. Olivia, you said that the, the the model cuts the watershed up into land segments. How many segments, land segments is that? There is over 5,000 land segments. And each of those land segments uh, has the wind and rain uh, partitioned on each one of those segments? Yes. How many variables would you say goes into calibrating each of those land segments? The There's over 100 variables uh, within each land segment. So when you're thinking over 5,000 times 100, you're, you're looking at uh, a pretty massive uh, system that, that was calibrated uh, starting in 1997. So what, so what that's doing... It's giving you, I use the term health, but it's giving you the state of the watershed. And it allows you to determine how it's going to come off. So you know what's up there and then how it's going to come off. So when we had the 97 flood, the question was, and it's the obvious one, well, how much runoff is going to come off? And where's the reservoir going to be at any given time? And where should the spillway we needed that for a multitude of reasons, but the obvious one, of course, is is for public safety. We need to, to, to let people know how far, how high is the river going to rise when we do release water through the spillway. We didn't have that information. We didn't have that intelligence. So we had to adapt. We had to go get the technology to answer those basic questions, and we brought that, that on. And as Olivia pointed to, um, it, it was very helpful in the 2017 flood, I view that as a vindication on our investment in 97, um, whereas the 97 event was a surreal, just hang on, the 2017 was more of a planned, okay, this is what we're going to do. Right, and and that speaks to the introduction of this new technology, and as Olivia mentioned earlier, the opportunity to decrease as much uncertainty as possible, right? Yes, I view we spent, tw- after the, ni- the 1997 event, we spent 20 years figuring it out. And that culminated in t- 2017. And something that we continue to refine. Yes, going forward. absolutely. Yeah, and, and kind of speaking on those refinements, uh, what makes HFAM so unique compared to other models out there is – one, you can input your forecast data into it. That way you can have a look at what the next 16 days could look like for you um, based on what's being forecasted for precipitation and temperature. 
and know do we have a problem when it comes to the flood control issue or for water supply, are we staying in this dry period? Is it actually drier than our normal uh, dry year planning conditions? And we need to make some adjustments in order to do that. And then past that point, so we have that 16 day kind of feel into the future, but then it has over 90 years of meteorological data that it then can apply to that state of the watershed and let you know, here's a bunch of possibilities that are probable um, that have happened in the past. These are conditions that you've seen in the past, and that could, this is how it would impact your runoff moving forward. And so that is kind of what we use when we go to the directors and we, we talk about the 90% exceedance, 50% exceedance, and 10% exceedance. That is all driven from the HPM model, and those 90 years uh, is of meteorological data is what's driving those exceedance values. Great. And can you define for us when you say exceedance, what do you mean by exceedance? Absolutely. So on the 90% exceedance, we equate that to our our dry scenario. And that means that 90% of years are wetter than that value. Um, So essentially 10% of years are drier. And then with your 50%, 50 are wetter, 50 are drier. And then on your 10%, only 10% of years in that 90 Uh, have wetter conditions than what that line is showing. Okay, so as you said, HFAM is kind of the combination of 90 years of historical data combined with our forecasting opportunities that we have, and that sort of creates the, the data that we see out of the HFAM model. I'm, I'm, I'm very much oversimplifying, I realize. And just one other little aspect here, Olivia, and it is the hub of all of the physical mechanics that's going on up there. Yeah, it, it, it is our main insight into what's happening at every corner of the watershed. Like I said, CNFRC, you get a forecast point. You don't know what's happening in the watershed. You don't know what your inputs and outputs are within their hydrologic model. They only provide you a single output for a single location. And, and then with DWR, it is also a single location, and there is no timing built into it. It is purely a volume. And so HVM is providing you not just the volume, but also the timing of that runoff. In Farsis, it's only capable of taking five days of forecast data into it. So you only have a, a look into the future of five days, and then after that, then it goes into that what we call the probabilistic mode, which is using that past data to, to guide what your, your future conditions could look like. And then with DWR, they're, for the most part, using your median conditions or your average conditions for their volume estimates. And I think what's kind of the real unique thing that's coming on board is with HRM, we get to continuously adapt it to our needs. And so one of those adaptations that we're bringing in is uh, called the SOAR. We love our acronyms. (laughs) Um, So that's essentially the Systematic Operation Analysis for Reservoirs. And and I know it's a a lot of words, but in reality, what it's trying to do is Don Pedro has a lot of demands on it. Uh, It has a lot of purposes. It's serving environmental flows. It's serving irrigation customers, um, M&I customers for Modesto, uh, as well as the sole flood control facility on the Tuolumne. So you have a lot of uh, needs from the the system. And so SOAR allows you to then create values uh, of your demands. So what what demands are you going to serve, especially when we're looking at these really volatile years? We have to look at 
how are we going to be making cuts? And, and something's got to give, right, when we're, we're in these extreme droughts. And then you have on the, the wet end, what are your risks? So you're able to create risk tolerances for ensuring that you fill as well as um, the tolerance for, to not spill. So you have these risk tolerance areas that it operates the, the reservoir within those bounds based on, you know, future inflows that you might expect. So you can use this to uh, help you inform your release decisions and what demands you're going to serve on a hourly, weekly, monthly, all the way to five-year uh, basis. Um, so that really helps us for this long-term planning that we're we're being forced to get into, right? We're, we had a four-year drought. We're now in the third of year of a drought. Five-year droughts are, they used to not seem like they were possible, but now it's, it's looking more and more probable. Gotcha. So this new SOAR program is really another layer of sophistication on what you're already doing. It just helps hone a little bit more into specifically Don Pedro and the, the, the characteristics and the obligations that are are put upon it. it exactly. I, I think a lot of people um, talk about reservoir operations. It's There's a science to it, but there's also an art. And the idea is that the SOAR starts to take into account some of the, the art uh, of operating a reservoir and that, that idea that how am I making my decisions? Where are your priorities lying? That's what it's taking into account, what a lot of tools aren't able to do. Lydia, isn't it also a way of looking at things. So in your original description of the forecast informed reservoir operations, you're operating your reservoir ba based on information. You're informed, how am I going to operate it today? But now you're going to a different level where, okay, we have a different thought process when we got a high snowpack and a full reservoir. But now that we have a low snowpack and a low reservoir, how should we be operating in the future, not just today? Definitely. I, I think because that, that is the, the unique thing of it is it's tracking uh, the marginal value of water, right? The value of water changes um, as you go through different year types, right? In a, in a wet year, uh, it has the more of a, a risks value to it for the kind of damage value that it could create. Um, but when you get into those dry years, you actually get to a, a true monetary value of that water, and it keeps increasing as uh, the resource depletes, right? It, it becomes scarce. And so that is the part of it that it's taking into account is is that marginal value of water and how how do you operate to that? Yeah, that's really interesting. I like how you characterize that, that value. Okay. So there are some other tools out there that, that TID has implemented and, and takes advantage of and, and works into our regular uh, modeling and forecasting. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about some of those. Let's, how about starting with the Airborne Snow Observatory? So the uh, Airborne Snow Observatory program, they take an airplane and they're basically scanning the watershed um, with a laser and they're measuring the depth of the snow and for me, uh, being in these wet years, when you get into, say, June, and there's no more snow course measurements, even if you had the snow course measurements, um, you don't understand what's going on up there. You have a value from a regression calculation. The ASO program scans that watershed. And the analogy I use is it's equivalent to a thermometer versus an MRI or a CAT scan. 
So one is a point location on the uh, end of a problem. The other one is a full scan of the health of the system, your body, right? And so that's the health of the, of the watershed. It's the ability to go out and touch the watershed. Whereas prior to that, in 2017, uh, I think it was June or July, we were on a big call and you, you said, well, what's, what's going on up there? Well, my aunt's cabin still got eight feet of snow on it. That's the state of the art Look, versus what we have now with this program. You have a, a three-dimensional picture of the whole watershed. And it's, um, it's not a new tool. It's not a new mousetrap. It is a whole different way of looking at it. But Wes, I want to go back to something you mentioned because you you referenced the the previous model, which included 17 different points of measurement in the snowpack. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So the historic so. since the 30s is uh, they go out and uh, they take a tube and they stick it in the snow, uh, push it all the way down to the dirt, and then they pull it back out and they measure the um, weight of the snow in the tube. So you, if you have the diameter of the tube and you have the length of the tube or the length of the ice, you know, the volume. And um, if you measure it, if you got the weight of the tube and the ice and subtract the weight of the tube, now you got the weight of the ice. And so between those two, you can calculate the volume of water. And so the idea is, is well, if you measure three feet of water at this location, say for example, Dana Meadows, and you extrapolate that out over the watershed, you're going to get, if you and if you have enough years, you can estimate the volume of water that's up there in the watershed. It's, it's uh, really, since, since you're um, comparing that to the actual runoff, you're estimating the actual runoff, not really what's up there. So, so you don't know what's up there. You're, it's a guess. And the regression calculation, that's a mathematical tool. And basically, you're dealing with the relationships of the, of the water content and the measurement versus the runoff. And it's those two relationships. And, of course, in a 1977 year, you've got a small amount and you've got a small amount of runoff. So in a wet year, in 83, 2017, you've got a large snowpack and you've got a large runoff. And that is the relationship only, nothing else. And... Um, Again, I view that as a calculation, whereas the technology that Olivia is dealing with is a model of the environment. And it worked, got us to where we're at, but it is not sufficient to deal with the issues that we're, in, that we're facing. Yeah, and just to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about earlier is, like Wes mentioned, that process is what we relied on for the whole first, you know, part of the history for Don Pedro was that information. And it, it served us pretty well. Um, but it did have a high amount of uncertainty. So that's the idea of you had this product, you know, it was, it was good enough for the time. But now that we're seeing these changes in the way that our snowpack is distributed, so it's no longer the same snowpack that they made the regressions on. Um, so we're seeing these changes and then you're having these huge hydrologic years that were outside of what that regression was created upon. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things compounding, now that uncertainty has gotten so much larger. And so that's the benefit of bringing in a product like ASO is we were noticing that the snow survey, the B120 process, it 
was no longer serving us as well um, in these record-breaking years. And so that's where we wanted to bring in ASO. And we were the first watershed to bring in the ASO technology uh, when we partnered with NASA on that. Um, But I think now everyone within the state is seeing the benefits of ASO. Uh, TID has been a great example of those benefits. And we now have nine watersheds that are using ASO technology within California. And the idea is, you know, every snow-dominant watershed within California having access to to ASO data to inform their operations. Like we said, California, or I might let Wes take this on. He loves talking about the California economy and the importance of water. Well, it is the fifth largest economy in the world, right? And um, we do have a substantial asset here in the San Joaquin Valley, and you want to be providing the most accurate data that you can. There's a lot at stake here. And... um, we don't have the time and the resources to deal with the inaccuracies of the uh, historic calculation process. Well, and to kind of jump on your your point about we don't have the time, right? We don't have the time to wait. That's the big thing. We're we're making our water availability decisions. We were already starting to look at it in February, talking to our board of directors. And so when you're waiting for the first of the month and eight working days after the survey's done in order to receive this information, that's too long to wait. An entire month of sitting there wondering what's happening in my snowpack versus with ASO, if we get a big storm that comes in and we're wondering, well, what did that do? You know, is our model actually, you know, producing the amount of snow that it should have based on that event? And there's a bunch of question marks. You can have ASO fly and get that information. You're not waiting an entire month to get that information to inform your your water supply decisions or your flood control decisions because flood control and water supply are made. Those decisions are real time. And so you need real time data. I can remember in the 87 through 92 drought that we made the decision on the irrigation in April because you're dealing with the April 1 snow course measurement and you're dealing with the state. And that's so about eight working days after the first, you get the values and okay, now you've got a bulk volume and you run that in your mass balance models. Okay, so what can we do? So we've gone from my perspective, mid-April making the decision to, to really setting the stage in February is this fair and locking it in in March. And, and that's based on, again, decreasing the uncertainty, working with the the new data, um, the more consistent data that this technology is providing, and knowing that you're making this recommendation on real information. It's not, it's not a projection. It's not a guess. It's not, um, like you said, kind of balancing some of the variables – that, that we have in the past, it's it's good, solid data. Okay, so I want to I dive into one more point about ASO before we move on, and that is, you know, you talked about the, the 17 points of measurement from the, the old system. How, do you, how can you describe for us the, the points of measurement, if you will, that are available under the ASO system or the Airborne Snow Observatory system? So there's, there's 17 snow course measurements in the Tuolumne. And then there's a few in the Merced and, and a one or two in the Stanislaus that, that is used in the official forecast of the runoff. 
And again, that runoff is an April through July amount. Those 17 measurements, as opposed to the ASO, which is scanning the watershed um, at about uh, every three every three square meters. So they're putting a laser dot on every about every three square meters. And they take all that information and they uh, compile it uh, into their algorithms. They're looking at a 50 by 50 meter square area. They actually measure over 4 million points. But for the, the products that we're, we end up using for snow water equivalent values, which is the depth measurement, that's those 4 million points. But then you have to multiply that by what your density is in your watershed. So that's at a, a little less um, granularity. So then you end up with about a million points uh, of snow water equivalent values for your watershed. It's hard to articulate the difference between what we had and what we've got now. Well, I think a, a good example of that is actually some work that one of our seasonal employees, Matt Siemens, is doing. He's looking at all of the ASO data that we, we've been using since 2012. And one of the things he found this year was he was looking at those million points of measurement. And, you know, people are like, well, why do you need a million points? What are you going to do with it? But he actually noticed an outlier point. And he was like, why is this point have such high values? And so he contacted the people at ASO and ended up that location had an avalanche. Wow. It, you know, it's something that granular you're able to see with those million points that, all right, that's why you had that outlier point within all your data sets. Um, so we're, we're using this data and we're, we're taking a, a deep look into what's happening in the watershed, even an avalanche at a single point. Wow, that's fascinating. Another thing is that the ASO program is doing, the snow sensors and snow course measurements are on the middle elevations. So the extreme upper elevation, and Olivia, do you know how much area that is? I want to say it's almost 40 to 60% yeah. of the watershed. Wow. So historically, we have not had any instrumentation on 40 to 60% of the watershed. So no access to or knowledge of the Ex specifics what's of, of what's up there. Wow. And so now I think that might lead into why there is such a swing when you do your calculations based on your snow course measurements. So ASO covers a lot greater territory, a lot greater percentage of the watershed, the, in, the entirety of the watershed, yep. and provides incomparable an incomparable amount greater data within that that area than anything we've had before. Just a very simple question. Is there snow at this location? It was a guess. Now you have a direct measurement. Uh, we're just now getting into this. The future is exciting on this. Um, I wouldn't even fathom to know where this is going to go. I mean, we've been using the historic system since the 30s. Uh, my feeling is 50 years from now, who knows? Well, and, and as you mentioned, Olivia, TID was the first water agency in the state to use ASO data, but now there are, are multiple agencies throughout the state that are using it. So I would imagine that even being having other agencies' data to draw from and kind of know what they're experiencing and what they're seeing in their watershed areas might even be a benefit to us here. Uh, absolutely. I think... There's a there's a benefit to almost a, a standard of operation, right? And being able to be on a level playing field where 
we're all in the same boat when it comes to climate change. Every water operator is dealing with the same issues. Um, you know, we like to all think we're unique, but uh, we, we do have the same issues. And so we're all looking to find solutions for it. And so whatever we can provide and share as our success stories, our failures, um, and fortunately, we've had a lot more success stories than failures and, you know, ASO, HFAM, um, and we'll probably get into it later, but also Scripps Institute, AR uh, Research, all of those items have have benefited us. And so we're, we're sharing them with others and they're letting us know, oh, well, this is how I look at the data. This is the way that I'm using it. And, and we're all able to, to pull off of one another. I, honestly, I see that as being one of the greatest benefits uh, of all these technologies is we're seeing this greater collaboration uh, between multiple groups. Um, you know, we're, we're tied really closely with the operations at city and county of San Francisco. So knowing how they're operating, what they're looking at, and um, as well as working with DWR, the Army Corps, uh, we're now even expanding to working with academic institutions. There's these these partnerships that are being forged that are going to help us all uh, move forward and, and be able to adapt uh, to climate change. Excellent. All right, Olivia, you mentioned Scripps and Atmospheric Rivers. Let's let's dive into that a little bit more. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, just to give people an idea on Atmospheric Rivers, I think it, it's now becoming a more popular term. So in the past, people might have heard of a Pineapple Express. That That's kind of the first atmospheric river. And essentially, a Pineapple Express is a warm atmospheric river. So it's one that uh, didn't go up into the Gulf of Alaska and kind of cool down all that moisture. And uh, usually those are the ones that cause you a big headache is the Pineapple Expresses. That would have been like the 1997. You had a really warm storm come onto your snowpack. So then you got this huge runoff um, in February or January, actually. So you're you're looking at those huge runoff values. And then when you have a cold storm, those are what we look for is those cold atmospheric rivers that come in. They bring in almost 60% of our water supply when you, you get a good amount of them. So that they're really vital to the water supply within California. And in the past, we really didn't have a good uh, hold on when they were coming, what processes drove them. Uh, and when you have something that's driving your water supply, I think you should have a, a pretty good handle on it. So, and, and, and there's a difference, if, if you will let me interrupt real quick, there's a difference between knowing you've got a storm coming in and knowing you've got an atmospheric river coming in and, and what that means. Yes, actually, atmospheric rivers, over 90% of the floods in California have been connected to an atmospheric river. So they, they are also a water supply feeder as well as a uh, flood creator. Uh, so definitely why you have to, to keep a hold on when they're coming and then when they're not coming. That means you're you're not getting that water supply that you're expecting. And so that's what Scripps Institute's process is, is they're um, doing reconnaissance missions, studying the the dynamics of how they move in the system to know when are they going to make landfall, where are they going to make landfall, and how long uh, are they going to be uh, moving across the system. So all of those aspects come in uh, because you could have a uh, – say a moderate atmospheric river come in, but if it sits over your area for an entire day, it can cause the same amount of damage as, say, an extreme atmospheric river for a short duration. Uh, so that's why you have to look at all dimensions of it. Um, and I think that's what's 
really unique with Scripps is they have tailored a lot of their products to be digestible for for the end user, and they really were beneficial as water operators uh, is where we've we've seen the benefit. Um, being able to look at how much moisture is available in the system, because that gives me an idea of how confident should I be in this forecast before I look at this forecast and. One forecast cycle, I have 14 inches of rainfall, and the next forecast cycle, I'm down to two. So what what does that mean? And so I can now look at, well, is there even moisture available to create a 14-inch storm? Or how many of those ensembles are indicating that that's possible? And if it's pretty low, and that just happened that that forecast chose one of the high, you know, biasing higher on those ensembles, that's important for me to know. And that's how I can gauge my confidence within those forecasts uh, in order to, to guide our operations. Olivia, wasn't that a big deal this year, say January and February, when we would get these forecasts of rain events, um, but there was no... Um, substance behind them. And um, didn't that kind of help us reorient from this uh, uh, flood thinking perspective, accelerated um, our understanding, our appreciation of where we were going? Is that fair? Definitely. I, I think right after those December storms ended and then that pressure ridge created, it, it was the first indication that, that things were turning dry. So every time I would check the the AR products, I kept seeing no moisture, no moisture. And it was for a majority of California. You know, sometimes it just misses our, our section. Uh, it might be going up into Tahoe, but this time all of California had no moisture available to to drive any kind of significant rainfall. And so that, that was really important for us. So any kind of rainfall that we would get would be more from frontal systems or something of like that where you usually get much smaller uh, accumulations of rainfall. All right. So, Wes, why don't you tell us a little bit about how we came to be using the Scripps product and this this technology? Well, we were always looking for uh, more insight. And um, what I ran into was that uh, you can get the information, um, but it, it takes some wherewithal, first of all, just to get your hands on it. And the National Weather Service uh, is notorious about uh, producing a lot of information. And then you've got, once you get your hands on it, which is, no, is not easy, then you've got to process it. and you got to um, put it in perspective. And so I literally was uh, surfing the net looking for uh, some specific types of graphs and ran into scripts. And um, at first I thought, uh, I wonder if this is what I think it is. And uh, so I got to watching them and monitoring them. And um, I've, it, I, I can't articulate how powerful those tools were, the, the, um, the insight that they provided, and the confidence that those that that information and I call it intelligence provided you um, in 2017, uh, it made things very easy to make a decision on uh, making releases say 15 feet below the flood control level. Um, I tell everybody that historically was a, a fireable offense because we didn't have that effort and you just don't do that. 
But because we had that information and intelligence, and they presented it in a fashion where you could use it in operations, it, it's, I can't say enough. It made all the difference in, all the in difference. that event yes. and how we operated. Yes. As opposed to, say, 1997. Mm-hmm. How long have we been using the, the scripts? I was looking at it in 2011, 12, started, started. I was, that's when I was, 2011 was a wet year. Um, so I, that's when I kind of started to auger into it. Okay. All right. I want to go back uh, very quickly to the, uh, Olivia, something that you had talked about um, with regard to the, the relationships and the partnerships uh, that you guys are um, are building and and really kind of information sharing with. Um, where does the the benefit in those partnerships come from? Is it is it their data? Is it their experience? What what makes those so valuable? Uh, if I can uh, say all of it, yeah, that that's what I would say is, you know, data is useful. Right. But then you need to then do some analysis. You get some insights, which that's what a lot of we're sharing with one another. Um, but then the, the conversations that you end up having create intelligence that you get to carry forward as, as kind of part of your toolbox. Right. So you, you hear these stories, but then you're able to have these conversations and build upon each other. And I, I think what's really unique is there, there used to be this gap between what research was doing or the academic com- community was doing and the problems and needs of operators. And we're now seeing uh, the two starting to come together. And, and that's where, if you look at these programs, ASO was a partnership with NASA. Uh, when you're looking at Scripps Institute, that's down at UC San Diego. So you're seeing researchers now creating operational tools and products uh, and really talking to the operators and saying, how can we help you? And then even for us, us reaching out to, to researchers and saying, how can you help us? Yeah, because sure. we have a multitude of problems and not enough time uh, to solve them all. So it, we have to work together to, to try and find those solutions and, um, you know, expand your, your analytical capabilities across all of California. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And it seems like something that would be such a, a natural collaboration, but it, it's good to see that that is actually coming to fruition now. Okay. So I, we have all of these various tools that, uh, that you're using to um, kind of inform the, the recommendations that you're making on, on behalf of the district. So I just want to give you guys a quick opportunity to talk about um, or highlight the, the accuracy with which uh, you're seeing from the data that, that comes from these tools. So let's take a look at, at last year, as of March 8th, I think that was when you kind of brought your recommendation forward to the, the TID board of directors. How did that, looking back now, how did that line up to the, the actuality of what we saw come out of that season? Absolutely. So um, we were looking at what our April through July runoff is, because that's our, our snowpack runoff. And using the HFAM model, which was validated by the ASO flight. So, you know, we have the HFAM working and it, it's building up a snowpack uh, based on all these physical processes. But then you have ASO giving a physical measurement to confirm that your model's tracking properly. Because um, that's the one thing ASO can't do is how that snowpack's going to come off. So we, we need that HFAM 
part of the puzzle uh, to get that part. So we were able to validate our snowpack. Uh, and then we were able to, to look at the forecasts of what are we going to see 16 days out? Is there a big atmospheric river coming? And now we can provide, um, you know, two more inches to our farmers and, and those kinds of decisions. So I was able to integrate that as well into the HVM to make projections for that April through July period of what we might expect for runoff. And we ended up only being 10,000 acre feet off of the actual. Wow. And when you're talking of, you know, 460,000 acre feet being 10,000 acre feet off is a minimal. That's pretty darn good. And so it was a highly successful year and and really was once again that success story of all. It's great to have these tools, but making sure they're working together and feeding one another. And, and we've created almost a an environment, right? That That's what we're working within is an environment uh, with these tools. That's awesome. Historically, we would look at the 50%, or you can call that average, the 50% exceedance uh, for the runoff, of, say for the April through July. And then we would also run scenarios under the 90%, the dry, and the 10% wet. Um, what we're doing now because we have an understanding of what the absolute minimum, so if we don't get any more rainfall from now on, what is the absolute minimum number that we can have? The the numbers that we're reporting are what we call the, the 99 or 100% exceedance, with no rainfall, absolutely no rainfall, and then the t- 90% exceedance, and the Average is considered the wet scenario. So in these years here, so I just find it a little interesting that we've moved the spectrum because of our understanding. We've moved the spectrum that we're looking at down uh, to take into account the worst case, worst possible scenario, uh, because we're seeing these. Sure, sure, absolutely. So when we look back on the numbers that that we have forecasted regarding some of the numbers that are generated elsewhere, uh, TID often comes a lot closer to the mark, as you as you mentioned, um, than others, even even at times the the state of California. What is it about our modeling uh, that brings us closer to that actual number um, than the numbers maybe the state is generating? I think a big part of it is we have the benefit in the tech in the Tuolumne that you you do have a lot of research that goes on in the Tuolumne. Um, so we, we do have a lot of insights into what's going on. And uh, we actually have one of the better snow survey programs, if you can, only 17 measurements, but it's actually one of the better programs. Uh, there are areas where you have very few measurements and you have even larger watersheds with very few measurements. And so, and they're relying solely on the DWR B120. They, they don't really have any other tools. They don't have an HVAM model um, that they're using. And so we were seeing in some areas within, uh, I believe it was the Feather last year, they said that they were 600,000 acre feet off. Oh, wow. That they didn't, it was water they didn't receive from the snowpack that they expected because it was indicated by the B120 uh, forecast. And, and that's a that's a lot of water. That's a and, and that's a big difference. issue. Um, and, and even for us, we, we happen to, maybe get lucky with our, our snow survey forecast. And it was within about 60,000 acre feet of actual. Um, but still when you're comparing 10,000 versus 60,000, 
that that is, um, you know, a few inches to our farmers. So, so locking that in is, is really important. Absolutely. All right. And what other, what other benefits does TID have uh, in considering these new technologies that we might implement and, and different resources that we might uh, put into effect um, that maybe is more difficult for the, the state to implement? Yeah, we are um, publicly owned utility and we own and operate Don Pedro. Uh, there's a lot of agencies that don't own or operate the facilities that they're um, that they serve their customers with. And so we are able to quickly integrate these new technologies um, into our program. And, and we have a an amazing board of directors that is willing to make these investments. And, um, you know, they understand the necessity uh, to be proactive and not be reactive in these situations. So Olivia is taking this data information from all these resources and giving a report to the directors weekly. So there's a there's a real time aspect of this. So as this stuff is adapted and we're seeing things, she is communicating that immediately for all intents and purposes to the policy individuals to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. That's important, and and probably makes the the directors feel a lot better knowing that this isn't a report they're getting on a quarterly basis. This is real time data that they that informs their decisions. So that's that's awesome. Okay, so as I, I referenced way back at the beginning, um, there's a lot of data and a lot of coordination that goes into setting the irrigation season. Uh, can you walk us through what that process actually looks like? Uh, sure, and I think we kind of touched on it earlier, but we're we're looking at that TID active storage and, and that whole process we went through. We're looking at what do we think San Francisco is going to do? We're taking into account uh, what HVM is predicting as far as runoff uh, availability and then also what MID's operations are going to look like. So we're taking into account all those things and looking at, okay, now TID active storage. What, what do we have available? From there, then we have to look at what are our other obligations that we need to serve this year. So one of them being our environmental flows, because that's a, a license issue. In order to keep our license, we have to meet those flows. Um, so we remove that from that bucket of available water uh, that we currently have. And then we're looking at, okay, well, how much are we expecting to come in during the irrigation season? What kind of inflows are we expecting? So we can add that to our current active storage. And then we also then go ahead and take it a step further and consider what are our obligations next year for our environmental releases uh, to make sure next year we can cover those obligations. And then we even go to the point of looking at what is the evaporation on Don Pedro. It is not a closed system. There are you know, natural losses from Don Pedro. So we even account for those losses to TID active storage. And it's only from there then we can look at, okay, what can we provide uh, from Don Pedro to our farmers. And, and that's heavily guided by what kind of carryover uh, we're going to have at Don Pedro. And, and normally we, we try and carry over uh, enough to, uh, to survive for the next year. That, that, that's a lot of it um, is just survival when you get into these long-term droughts. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, and, and as you mentioned earlier, even the smallest amount of water saved directly translates to what we're able to provide our growers, which is is huge. Okay, so LSAM, another tool that we use to just complete the whole 
uh, Wes, as you mentioned earlier, kind of the whole understanding of the health of the system from from top to bottom. So, and so that allows us. I cut you off there. That allows us to run scenarios and answer questions that the directors and the policy individuals here at TID have. Um, we can, instead of literally guessing, we say, okay, this is, this is what you're going to see under these conditions. And uh, it just makes things more efficient, of course. Sure, sure. And gives us the flexibility to adjust some yes. of those scenarios yes. to, to present different opportunities. Very good. So, Wes, what are some of the programs that have helped uh, inform some of the inputs and outputs that we're using to build information for the lower end of the system? SBX7, the district invested heavily in the measurement and control devices on the TID canal system. And what that did was allow us to generate the information and the intelligence on how the system is working and what it's doing. And as a result of that, the district has uh, developed some conservation programs, as is the, the TID customer. So the system's running a lot, of t- lot tighter. And that has huge benefits in these conditions that we're in now. And, and I would add to that is we're, we have a gravity-fed system. And so th- there is always going to be spills, right? We, we can't completely close the system. But I have to give kudos to our water distribution officers and the work that they have done uh, f- through the 2012 through 2015 drought and now into this drought. They have made so many improvements on reducing the amount of spills and, and trying to to move the system around and, and also just working within this new environment of having these new gates and this uh, volumetric accounting and all those items. I, I think they, they deserve real kudos for, for the efficiencies that we're starting to see in the system. Awesome. Oh, that's great. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, the, the LSAM that you – um, that you alluded to earlier, that lower system um, model. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that? So essentially all of those efficiencies that we were just talking about with adding in those those gates and then also the work to reduce spills and we're, we're running our Turlock Lake differently in order to, to conserve the most amount of water possible. How do you now integrate that into the water that's actually provided on farm. <clears throat> and so that's what the LSAM is doing is it's looking at what are the inputs and what, where are the losses in your system? And then from there you get an on-farm value. And that's where we make that conversion from acre feet at Don Pedro that's being provided. So this year, 394,000 acre feet at Don Pedro and then what it translates to on farm. So in, in this case, it's 27 inches. Very good. Okay, so what are some of the next steps with these existing tools, or are there new tools in development that TID is looking to be a part of? So from my experience, um, the sky's the limit. I look at what we're doing now versus what we were doing 10 years ago versus 30. Uh, It's unreal. And these new tools create other opportunities. And... We're just starting. Uh, it's it's just exciting. It's fabulous. Um, your question is right on. I think there's a massive world that we're going to have to learn to adapt to. 
I, th- I think there's a long road to hoe and it's, we're just now starting. Yeah. And I, I think what I would add to that is, as I mentioned, we're, we're creating an environment or maybe a better term is a, an ecosystem uh, for water operations. And so we want to keep adding to it and, and adapting the, the tools that we have. And so I think one of the, one of the tools we're looking at is it's called land IQ and that would be integrating directly with the the LSAM model. And that's giving you a monthly snapshot of what are the crop patterns within the district? What's the soil moisture at every single field within the district? And what kind of precipitation occurred at each location? So having those monthly snapshots, then you can feed that into your LSAM because those are all inputs and outputs for your system uh, to be able to better lock in the that true demands that you have. And and we're going to, using this Land IQ program, we would be able to do that on a parcel by parcel basis? That That is the, the concept, is wow. we would be able to do it parcel by parcel. Because that, and that makes sense because based on the soil makeup and in, in different parts of our service territory, you're going to see even the same amount of precipitation used differently from parcel to parcel. So, um, wow, that's an incredible. And I think the, the intent is to make that information and our intelligence available to the customer. And in all probability, the customer will adapt using that information. So I, I think it's uh, exciting where this is going to go. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a grower out there that would turn away having more information about uh, what's happening on their property. That, that's fantastic. All right. What else? What other? What are some of the other programs that are out there? Um, I think actually one of my my favorite projects that we're we're working on right now, if I could say that, is we're working on a weather generator with Cornell University and also in partnership with DWR. And essentially, what a, a weather generator is is in the past. The way that we would deal with climate change or predict climate change was you got these large values of okay, you can expect two degrees warming with a 5% increase in precip. And then you would just apply that to your historic data. But the problem is, is that doesn't allow you the the variability that we're seeing right now, right? So you're not increasing the frequency of your dry years or the frequency of your wet years. You're just making your wet years a little bit wetter. Um, but the problem is the sequencing aspect of it. And so that's the benefit of the weather generator is you're then looking at what are the impacts to the Tuolumne watershed, as well as to TID facilities. So the idea is we'll take this weather generator output and then feed it into our HFAM model, which is able to ingest that data and then produce what kind of hydrology could we expect within the future? What does that distribution look like? And that'll help us to then plan for what kind of investments do we need to make to our facilities in order to capture these wet years uh, as well as sustain us through those extreme droughts. Sure. And and what sort of a, a forecasting capability does that give us as far as how how far out are we able to to use that data? Right now we're we're looking at taking that out to about 100 years of data. Now it has the capability of running much further, uh, but you, I think you start to get to the point where your your statistics start to break down when you look too far out. Um, so you, you definitely wouldn't be using this on a, a short-term basis. It's not a, a forecasting tool. It, it's an adaptation tool, a, a climate change mitigation tool to kind of guide uh, what you're going to be um, 
doing in the future? Well, one of the things that we're looking at is the distribution of the runoff is changing. The volatility is increasing. So, for example, the um, using a statistical term, and the details of it are not important. It's the magnitude of the change. Is uh, the standard deviation has moved from seven hundred and fifty thousand to one point two million. Now the one point two million is looking back at the last sixty years. The seven hundred and fifty thousand was the first sixty years of the hydrology. So it's increasing. So what is the true distribution that we're under today? It's biased because we're having to look backwards. Right? We don't know what the future is going to be. So this weather generator is going to hopefully give us some insight as to what the true distribution is so that when we're operating, Livia's running the models and trying to make decisions on releases, what is the true 50% exceedance or 90 or 10% exceedance that we could possibly experience? And that hope, that model hopefully will give us some insight into that. So it's very exciting could be very powerful. Yeah, and I, and I think that's where the what we talked about earlier with SOAR will come in with that is we're not only going to see these changing hydrologic conditions in the future, but we're also going to be seeing changing demands on our system. You're, you're going to have regulatory requirements. You're, we're going to see shifting in demand from our own customers. There's a lot of changes that are going to happen um likely also due to climate change. And so how do we integrate those new demands into our thought process? And so that's where I think SOAR comes in, and especially you know on the near term with Sigma and Sigma compliance and, and recharge. How much of your water available, when can you recharge? When do you have water available to start moving over? What kind of conveyance uh, system do you need in order to move that volume of water? So all of those questions come into line whenever... Uh, you start looking at these new regulations and demands and and needs. Yeah, that's. I'm I'm glad you mentioned Sigma, the the uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. That's that's a something that's definitely going to be affecting the district. And I appreciate you making that tie back to even in that situation, how all of this technology and and all of this information can can impact that. If I can comment here real quick, this stuff has a tendency to leverage other stuff. Because Olivia has the state-of-the-art real-time model and because it is dealing with the dynamics and the physics that it is, this allows us to participate with this weather generator in Cornell and to bring research and operations together immediately. If we didn't have these tools, this research would go on, but we couldn't. you can't connect the two. And now we have the capability. You have both halves of the whole operating together. Fair? Yeah, we're, we're, we get to sit at the table, right? Because we have Something the resources. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. So in the midst of all of this data that you have, uh, is there anything that's missing? Is there anything that we, we currently haven't gotten our hands on yet that uh, would further improve our, our forecasting or modeling efforts? I think one of the big things is, is actually – uh, soil moisture, and uh, also your your ET your evapor evaporative demands on your system. So we we've now locked in our snowpack on our output. We have a validation for our model snowpack, but we don't have validation on our soil moisture or our evaporative demand 
values. And so actually, if we could get something like land IQ that we're planning to apply to the lower system on the upper system, that would be ideal. That would be another area to, to lock in your one of your other inputs and outputs on your system. It is a mass balance. So if you can can reduce the uncertainty on any one of those items, it, it increases your confidence. Are there any other programs or products out there that, that could provide additional information or data? So they're going to launch a, a satellite, and um, they're going to measure the uh, elevation of the land. And you say, well, that's kind of basic. Well, it's not. There's not a good continuous understanding of the elevation uh, uh, in the contiguous United States. In other words, going from the state of California all over, all the way to the East Coast. And then you, you break it down. There has been uh, substantial land uh, subsidence, uh, for example, on the San Joaquin Riverside. Uh, if you, there's, uh, there's pictures that you can get on the Internet where it shows uh, somebody standing on this bridge and 18 feet above them is the elevation of the land 30 years ago. What that means is when you get into flood control operations is that uh, obviously the elevation of the river uh, and the water is the utmost important thing. But if the land is subsiding, uh, your property uh, is closer to the water. Well, how close? And so they're going to be flying. This satellite will will fly over uh, and take a measurement every two weeks, a very high resolution. So now you have what's called a digital elevation map, uh, a very precise measurement of what's going on, and literally measuring the height of the river flow and on and on and on. And so now you can properly position your resources. You know exactly where they need to be and or where, actually more important, where they not need to be So because resources are always limited. So this is one area that um, really, in all honesty, who knows where it's going to go. They're going to be scanning the entire U.S. Well, that means that they're going to be scanning the our watershed. So we're going to have an understanding of this is another measurement of the system. And literally, we're going to be seeing if those mountains move up there. And they have on us. In fact, we've had some mudslides and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's we have this instrumentation on the health of the system. So that's going to kind of give us a baseline not not considering the the snowpack that's there, not considering the precipitation that's coming down, but this will give us a baseline as to what the terrain is actually like. Yeah. Then we'll be able to kind of add to it of what snowpack is falling and what's there, and and help kind of tighten up those. Yes. Yeah, so uh, on the lower system, now we can take the the models that Olivia is using and incorporate this information into the model so that now when she's running it and it's it's forecasting flows, not only do we have the flows that are being released out of Don Pedro and the estimated flows in Modesto, but we now have the impact of those flows. We know what the elevation is along the river and how much of the land is being inundated. And... So 
we can say, well, this area is going to get flooded or this area is not. And we are connected to the San Joaquin system, so now we have a complete picture of the whole system. All right. Any other uh, new data sources that we're, that we're looking forward to? Uh, one of the other areas actually is still connected to USGS. It's, it's not quite as cool as putting a satellite over the entire U.S., but uh, is actually just the gauges. So the way in which we track and measure the water in the upper watershed, uh, as well as tracking and measuring all those inputs I mentioned earlier for the HFAM, precip, solar radiation, temperature, all those items. Uh, so we've been going through a process through actually a, a grant that we received from the Flood Coordinator Operations Group. And with that, we've been able to upgrade a lot of our current gauge locations. And that just makes it to where they're, they're more accurate. We're using better systems. Uh, and then as well as adding new locations, uh, especially one of the new ones we added was on the Dry Creek watershed um, to be have better accurate um, precip data for that local runoff component of our, our forecasting. And so that that's an area that that's actually really important. It, it seems simple, but uh, especially with models, you, garbage in is garbage out. So if we can make those inputs uh, as tight as possible, and, and the more inputs you can provide it, uh, the more accurate it is, uh, rather than trying to extrapolate from a single station um, point and trying to assume what the precip at one station is at a single land segment and its relationships, if you could have... Um, greater spread of those stations. It's really beneficial, especially because we are seeing storms that happen to hit only small sections of the watershed. Uh, for example, they're in Moccasin in 2018. So you get, can get these large rainstorms and it only hits one part. And if you don't have a gauge there, you didn't capture it. Um, so I think that that's a, another area of improvement. Another thing that we're seeing, it's kind of hard to articulate the value here. Is it because of the software tools, machine learning language, um, neural nets and such, we can take the historic data and it's redevelop the curves that we, th that we were originally working with and uh, we can gleam out uh, the true nature of the data. And there's uh, we're just now starting to t touch on that. Yeah, I think I would add to that is you know, we're mentioning all this technology, all this new data sets. We're, we're shifting from a space of point locations to now spatial data that has millions of points. So how are we as TID supposed to ingest all this data and actually make informed decisions from it? Um, there's only so much we can do, and that's where we are leaning on new software, new technology like machine learning because it acts as uh, – another person, right? Another mind um, and uh, highly trained and specific um, uh, benefits and trends that it, it, it's trained to. And so that's where it expands the analytical capacity uh, of TID and, and allows us to be able to actually use all of this data that's coming in. Absolutely. Because even just what we've talked about in this podcast, there, it sounds like there is way more data available than the two of you would ever be able to to sort through and, and process. So you, you definitely need a, need a hand. The volume of data is leaping, leaps and bounds, the amount that's available. And so you've got to have these tools and these capabilities um, to absorb it and to understand it. 
And again, it's, there's kind of a feedback loop taking place where you've got all this data and you're developing this information and then these tools allow you different ways to look at it. And so now you go back in and it's, it's just kind of growing. Um, uh, you know, again, we started out with 17 measurements or 17 snow course measurements and now we're dealing with millions and millions of points on a spatial environment. So it's, no, that's my take on it, Olivia. No, I think that's a, a great way to put it, right? You're, we were talking about you're going from a point to the surface to now three-dimensional, right? The, there's so many variables, and then you, you get to move around the object and look at it from different angles and perspectives, uh, and that's As they the evolve like over do. time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. time's a big component. In, in the case of machine learning, is there any value to the fact that, that the subjectivity with which a hydrologist, for example, might bring to the situation is removed. So Wes, you've you've been doing this for 30 plus years. You you bring with you your own set of experiences, um, some of which is is learned data, but some of it is is kind of gut feeling or I've been this been through this before. Is that is that something that comes into play when when working with machine learning that that component is is removed and is that good or is that bad? What I found is is that um, you develop a gut feeling and the, you, you have a feeling for the end result based on some circumstances. What you don't have with that gut feeling is the process between the observation and the end result. You think you know why, or you know that something's going to happen, but you don't know why. And now with the machine learning, you're finding out, oh, my original assumptions, uh, actually, they were quite wrong. Uh, just because you're lucky. Or potentially quite right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I think you could you could go on days, weeks, years uh, philosophizing, right, the, the benefits and the, the dangers of, of using machine learning. And, and that's where you do have to be selective on, on how you use it. And in some ways it can remove the, the bias out of it, which can be good. Uh, but there is a part of it that, is a bit black box where you don't know what biases you're also teaching it. Um, and so being aware of those and, and what data sets you're using to training and, and uh, you have to still take a look at the data and get a feel for it before you start just tossing it in there. Um, so we're using all of the, we're using all the systems we can get our hands on. So we're using the historic, um, but now we have a, perspective on what that represents, you know, the, the, the good and the bad of the historic operations and tools. And then, uh, for example, the HFAM model and the ASO come together. And we can say, okay, is the HFAM model, is it, did it come up with the right number? Is it the same as the ASO value that when we, on that particular date? Or the other way around, is the ASO meeting the HFAM. And so we have these variety of tools, and when they intersect, we're looking at this, okay, well, there's a different, why is that difference? And because you have the tools, now you can answer that. Whereas historically, you may not even know there's a problem. Okay. So Wes, like I said, you've, you've been doing this for nigh on 30 years. 
What does it look like 30 years from now? What's your prediction? In the next five years, it's going to be awesome. It's just unreal. And then from there, the sky's the limit. It's, it's, the things are moving and changing so fast. It's just surreal. So 30 years is too far, uh, maybe five. But it's, it is. It, year to year is uh, what we're doing and playing with, what Olivia's dealing with. It's, it's all you can do to keep up, much less understand what's going on. Sure. Olivia, what are you most looking forward to in the next five years? Next five years? Well, I, I really do feel like right now we're, we're in this, I don't know, renaissance period uh, for hydrology. There, there's a lot of changes, a lot of new ideas, new perspectives coming into, into play. Um, so like Wes said, I think it, it's going to be a whole different landscape five, five years from now. And it's, what keeps me coming back every day is it, it changes every day. Um, so it makes my job exciting. And I just love talking about what we do. It's extremely fun and a lot of good stuff. It is a lot of good stuff. Absolutely. I, that's a perfect way to wrap up. You guys, thank you so much for sharing all of the good stuff with us. <laughs> We're so happy to have you here and uh, look forward to having you back again. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the TID Water and Power Podcast. You can find TID on Facebook at facebook.com slash TurlockID, on Instagram and Twitter at TurlockID, and on LinkedIn as the Turlock Irrigation District. I'm your host, Constance Anderson. We'll see you again next time.